Interfaith Voices, this is Inspired. Each week we explore the beliefs that shape our world, our politics, our culture, and events that impact our lives. I'm your host, Umbreen Khan. This week, we begin with the life of Roman Catholic nun, Sister Diane May Ortiz. In 1987, shortly after taking her vows in the Ursuline Order, she traveled to Guatemala to be a missionary, teaching Mayan children in San Miguel, Acatan. It was a mission taking place at a time when the country was in the grips of a civil war. And it was during that conflict that an estimated 200,000 people were killed and thousands were kidnapped and tortured at the hands of military and government forces. And that included Sister Ortiz. On November 2, 1989, she was abducted for 24 hours and tortured. Unlike many, she survived. After returning to the United States, she made a determination to dedicate her life to holding the U.S. government to account for its complicity in supporting the right-wing regimes in the 37-year Civil War. Ortiz became a global human rights advocate and a voice for survivors of torture until her death in February 2021 at the age of 62. Independent journalist Maria Martin from Guatemala brings us her story and journey. A note of caution, listeners. This story includes discussion of difficult topics, including sexual violence and abuse. Those who knew her recall the petite, slender sister Diana Ortiz appeared delicate, yet possessed a spirit of incredible strength. She came across as fragile. She was very artistic, creative, gentle. Her sense of humor was gentle. Everything about her was gentle. But she was extremely stubborn and very strong and had a really strong moral kind of character. And she was very, very spiritual. The miracle of my life is that out of unspeakable horror came a new mission in life. And I no longer have any doubt who set me on it. Diana May Ortiz was born the fourth of eight children to Ambrosia and Pilar Ortiz, a homemaker and a uranium miner. Raised in Grants, New Mexico, since she was little, Diana talked about wanting to become a nun. She entered the convent at 17 and trained to teach small children. The young sister Diana wanted to become a missionary, especially in Latin America. In 1985, Diana was given the opportunity to work in the remote indigenous village of San Miguel Acatán in Guatemala. The country was then still in the throes of a bloody civil conflict that was to take more than 200,000 lives before ending in 1996. In an effort to find out why she was abducted by the Guatemalan military just a few years into her stay, I traveled to that mountain community in 1999 to investigate the story. 
What you'll hear next is from that documentary. It's not easy to get to San Miguel Acatan in the northern Guatemalan Highland province of Huehuetenango. But this outlying Maya community was where a 30-year-old Ursuline missionary came in 1985. And today, next door to the white church that marks the center of San Miguel, built around a flower garden and a statue of the Virgin Mary, stands the brightly colored Escuela Parroquial Diana Ortiz, the Diana Ortiz Parochial School. This community knew and admired Diana Ortiz very much, and that's why they named the school after her. Today, Chico Martin is conducting religious training in Mayan for parents in San Miguel. But 10 years ago, he says he worked closely with Diana Ortiz, the woman the school and also his nine-year-old daughter are named after. Well, we remember her to this day. She started the youth ministry and helped the young people a lot during the time of the violence. She supported the young men who were forcibly recruited into the army. She did a lot of work, good work. The sentiment that Diana Ortiz's presence is still being felt, even after she left San Miguel so many years before, even after her recent death at the age of 60, was expressed by many at memorials in Diana's many communities. All-powerful God, we pray for Sister Diana, who responded to the call of Christ and pursued wholeheartedly the ways of perfect love. During these memorials, people recalled how this gentle and strong woman's life and spiritual path were shaped by her experience in Guatemala. The Washington, D.C.-based writer Pat Davis was a longtime friend and colleague and co-author of Sister Diana's memoir, The Blindfold's Eyes, My Journey from Torture to Truth. I think even before her torture, she had a strong sense of fighting for justice. And, you know, that's part of her her calling, I, I believe, to become a nun. I know that when she was teaching um, kindergarten, she was called the radical nun. But she was teaching them early on about justice and about peacemaking and nonviolence. And so I think that was already a strong part of her character. And that's why when she got the death threats in Guatemala, she didn't leave. Diana's memoir and my documentary from 1999 recount the terrible events of November 2nd, 1989, the day that shaped the direction of her life and her spiritual destiny. Unclassified U.S. Consular Report, U.S. Embassy, November 1989. Text of proclamation given to the consular section by the papal nuncio but of unknown origin regarding the alleged kidnapping of U.S. citizen Diana Ortiz is as follows. El jueves 2 de noviembre pasadas las 8 de la mañana, Diana pidió al encargado que le abriera la puerta hacia el jardín sola, 
On Thursday, November 2nd, 1989, about 8 a.m., Diana asked the caretaker to open the door to the enclosed gardens. She was there alone, reading the Bible, when a man put his hand on her shoulder and said, Hola, mi amor, which is a derogatory greeting from a man she doesn't know. Then another unknown man appeared. The man first insisted she should accompany them. She said she wouldn't go. So they showed her a pistol and said they would harm her friends if she didn't go. According to medical records, her back was burned 111 times. She was gang-raped, dropped into a pit with rats and human bodies, some living, some dead. En ese momento entró otra persona al cuarto. Uno de los hombres le dijo, Alejandro, ven a divertirte. At that moment, a fourth man entered the room. Someone said, Alejandro, come have some fun. But he answered them with an obscene word common in English among North Americans. He said, idiots, she's a North American, let her alone. It's already on the news on television. At one point, they were getting ready to rape me again, and that's when the fourth person came in to the clandestine cell, and that was Alejandro. And... They referred to him as their boss, and he spoke in Spanish, but his Spanish was not it was not that great. And it also also he had a, a very distinctive American accent. And after he oh God, I hate to remember this. When she spoke to me for that radio documentary in 1999, it was clear that Sister Diana Ortiz remained haunted by her horrific encounters in that torture chamber, and also by what she came to believe were betrayals, principally from her own government. Why did the U.S. Embassy at the time appear to doubt her story? when they knew that torture was used by the Guatemalan military to control its population. And she wondered, what was an American doing in the torture chamber to begin with? When he told me that he was taking me to see a friend at the U.S. Embassy, immediately I thought, you know, what is this? You know, is this a person who is working with my government? What am I supposed to think? The man they called Alejandro removed her blindfold and helped her dress. He put her in a gray Suzuki Jeep, and they proceeded to drive through busy Guatemala City traffic. During their Jeep ride, Alejandro told Diana that she'd been confused with someone else. When we were in the Jeep, that's when he spoke to me in perfect American English. And he told me that I should forgive my torturers and in other words forget what happened and he reminded me that they had uh, a video and some photographs of some acts that I was forced to participate in she kept moving away from my microphone as she recalled that at one point in the clandestine cell, one of the men had put a knife in her hand, then forced his hand over hers, and compelled her to stab a woman who lay bleeding on a cot in the prison. All this was filmed, taped, and photographed, as Ortiz's Alejandro reminded her during that jeep ride. 
Did you feel threatened? Did you feel this was a threat? It was a threat. It was a threat. How could it not be a threat? You're listening to Inspired, a production of Interfaith Voices. We'll be back after this short break. Stay with us. Hi, friends. I hope you're enjoying the show so far. I just want to say thank you. Thank you for listening. Thank you for being part of our community. I don't know if you know this, but we are on the air all the way from Richmond, Virginia to Ketchikan, Alaska, and in so many places in between. We're a national show, and we are a small and mighty team committed to bringing you stories and sounds from around the world that convey not only the diversity and the pluralism of our country, but the beliefs that are shaping our world, our politics, our culture, and the ideas that sustain us and inspire us to think about where we are going. And that brings me to this question. If you value us, if you enjoy listening and appreciate what you're hearing, I want to ask you to take a moment to consider becoming a sustaining member of Interfaith Voices or make a one-time donation at interfaithradio.networkforgood.com. That's interfaithradio.networkforgood.com. Thank you. And let's get back to the show. Listening to Inspired, a production of Interfaith Voices, let's get back to the story of Sister Diana Ortiz, reported by independent journalist Maria Martin. As soon as we heard that Diana was captured and was, you know, undoubtedly being tortured, then we just put up every possible response to have her, you know, released. When word got out of Diana's disappearance in Guatemala, back in the U.S., a woman named Sister Alice Sackman, the founder and the director of the Washington, D.C.-based Guatemala Human Rights Commission, USA, was busily contacting her religious and human rights networks to find the kidnapped nun. Riding in the jeep with a man called Alejandro, Diana's mind was racing. Who was he? And what were his intentions? Again, Sister Alice Sackman. Why was the guy from the United States in the torture chamber uh, with her and then offering to take her to the U.S. Embassy? I doubt very much if he would have ever done that. When the jeep came to a stop at a busy intersection, Diana managed to get out and ran. Eventually, the young nun got help to get her to the Marinole House and from there to the residence of the Vatican's representative in Guatemala City. It was only Diana's own inner strength that made that release possible. She had enough mental capacity and help from God because of who she was that she was able to jump out of that jeep 
and run. Sister Alice says that even in her traumatized state, her actions demonstrated Diana's great fortitude. And I just have always, always admired her ability to do that and not to give up. In the months immediately following her kidnapping and for years afterward, the Guatemalan and U.S. governments conducted a smear campaign, sowing doubts about Diana's credibility, as she told a human rights trial in 2005. I was labeled a liar, a crazy woman, even that I was a political strategist who was trying to influence Congress to cut off USA to the Guatemalan military. I just knew that Diana was speaking the truth, and I wanted to give her the support that she needed to speak that truth, no matter what it cost. Guatemalan government document. January 12th, 1990. Sobre el caso de la religiosa Diana Ortiz, explicó que toda la versión no es completa e incluso... Regarding the case of the nun Sister Diana Ortiz, it's explained that her entire version is incomplete and lacks credibility. Her torture had destroyed Sister Diana's basic faith in God. For many years, she struggled with trauma, pain, and questions. If God were so interested in me, then why the burnings, the gang rapes, all the other horrors? Diana's faith really was a naive kind of simplistic faith when she went to Guatemala because it, it was the kind of faith of Jesus will take care of me, and it was completely shattered. I yearn to rest, to be free of memories, to be free of fear. And so writing the book was a lot of rebuilding. Again, writer and co-author of Ortiz's memoir, Pat Davis. Rebuilding a sense of what God is and, and what our relationship with God is and how, how it is that God can allow these horrible things to happen. I met evil face to face. I saw what human beings were capable of doing to one another. And with that realization, my own faith in humanity was shattered. When she finally began treatment at the Marjorie Kovler Center for Survivors of Torture in Chicago, Diana Ortiz began to speak about her feelings. I had many questions. I wanted to ask God But unfortunately, we were not on speaking terms at that moment. And so I turned to the Bible. She hadn't been able to open the Bible since her torture. Her therapist at the Kovler Center advised her to just let the pages open randomly. But every time she did, the pages would always open to the parable of Jesus with the loaves and fishes. Was I supposed to be guided by miracles? If there was one thing I most definitely did not believe in, it was miracles. But bit by bit, Diana Ortiz came to a deep understanding. It had to do with the concept of community and faith and hope. Life is absurd. Therefore, there is always hope. 
Jesus accepted what there was, five loaves of bread and two fishes offered by a boy. He didn't complain or despair. He gave thanks to God for them, however insufficient they seemed, and he started passing them out. This biblical lesson gave the still-broken Diana the motivation to continue a life of service. As time passed, I forgave God for not working some dramatic miracle on doing my past. She recognized something more from her interactions with other torture survivors. I learned that God was indeed working a quiet, unobtrusive miracle, healing me through other people. Those small gestures, smiles, hugs, and kind words, all we had to offer each other in that house in Chicago had begun to counteract the power of the torturers, smirks, and punches. I don't think she completely healed, but she ended up being a much more whole human being than many people who haven't been through this. Again, Diana's friend, writer Pat Davis. Her experience made her a deeper, stronger, more spiritual person. And I think it made her probably more able to give. Like, the pain didn't go away. The memories didn't go away. She never regained who she had been before the torture. But she became another beautiful, loving creature. Take what you have in an attitude of faithfulness, in an attitude of faith, and it will be enough. It will be more than enough. That was what God had been trying to tell me. Sister Diana Ortiz used that perspective, informed by the terrible ordeal she'd gone through, to guide her spiritual and social justice vocation for the rest of her life. Through her work with the Guatemalan Human Rights Commission USA, as well as other human rights groups like Pax Christi, and as the founder of TASC, the Torture, Abolition, and Survivor Support Coalition, the only U.S. organization founded by and for survivors of torture. Many refugees who have been forced into exile do not have the luxury or the freedom to speak out. Many have families in their homeland. Others are seeking political asylum. And they live in fear that they will be returned to the country where they were tortured. She was very aware, even when she was in San Miguel, that she could leave because she had a U.S. passport. Other people did not have that luxury. Her faith was to walk with the people, to walk with the disadvantaged, to walk with the poor. And that's what nuns do. Each time I speak out, it is not about an American nun who was tortured. It is about every mother whose son or daughter is disappeared. It is about every person who has been tortured. 
physically, emotionally, sexually. It's about the 800,000 Rwanda children, women and men, who were slaughtered in a period of three months. And we, the international community, stood by and watched. It's about all the families of the disappeared, the assassinated, who daily watch the intellectual authors of these crimes go unpunished, as in Chile, Tibet, Guatemala, Burma, South Africa. It's about working collectively to try to prevent one more person from being tortured. Diana May Ortiz died of cancer on a wintry Friday in February 2021 at her Ursuline mother house in Kentucky. They say the snow she loved started just after she took her last breath. She could have been a very bitter woman and just felt sorry for herself. I mean, she just did the exact opposite. And I'm happy that she's at peace now. And she did, I think, what she could possibly have done. And I think that's why God took her home now. The indefatigable 95-year-old Sister Alice Ackman of the School Sisters of Notre Dame says, now we don't pray for Diana, we pray to Diana. That's right. I, I think she's already a declared saint. <laughs> Many other people have said the same thing. Sister Diana Ortiz, always teaching, came to believe that, as in her life, God has a plan for each of us. And I pray that your plan, God's plan for you, will rest on this credo. Thou shall not be a victim. Thou shall not be a perpetrator. And above all, thou shall not be a bystander. To those who knew and loved her, she hasn't gone away. Diana Ortiz, presente. For The Spiritual Edge, I'm Maria Martin. Maria Martin, an independent journalist based in Guatemala, is the author of Crossing Borders, Building Bridges, a journalist's heart in Latin America. This story was produced by The Spiritual Edge in collaboration with USC's Center for Religion and Civic Culture. Cheryl Duvall is the Sacred Steps editor. Tarek Fauda is the engineer and Judy Silber, executive editor. To hear more stories like this, visit thespiritualedge.org. Stay with us. 